my name is Jillian. My name is Yolanda. And welcome to the Pemberley Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Pemberley Podcast. And today we have another interview in this series of interviews that we've been doing. Today we have the transmedia producer and writer of the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, Jay Bushman, with us to talk about his transmedia experience on the show. It was so great to be able to sit down with him because obviously we sort of like to be story oriented mm-hmm. uh, here on the Pemberley podcast and sort of, at least I sort of feel like I've always sort of thought of tr- the transmedia and the storytelling as two different things, but it was so great having Jay on because he really enlightened us on the fact that they're one and the same. Yeah. And again, this goes back to with every interview, what we've been learning, just how much each person contributed in a unique way to this project and how much it really was such a team effort. So it's really great to hear Jay's perspective on the transmedia and his own previous experience in transmedia and onward with transmedia and whether or not that's even the right word. (laughs) So uh, we hope you enjoy this interview as much as we enjoyed talking to him. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy this interview. Hello, everybody. This week, we have a very special guest that we're very excited to have on. He was the transmedia producer and writer on Lizzie Bennet Diaries and the co-creator of Welcome to Sanditon. Please welcome Jay Bushman! Hi. Yay! Thanks for having me. This is this is going to be a lot of fun. I've been listening uh, to the podcast from the start, and I've been really enjoying it. Um, from the start? From the start. Uh, really? Yes. How did you... How did you... Because that's another... Uni- like, I feel like you and Margaret are the only people who really listened, which is like when our feelings aren't heard. But how did you find us? Um... I don't remember, actually. I think it just sort of popped up in my Twitter feed at some point. And I was like, oh, hey, (laughs) somebody's talking about a thing that I helped work on? Cool. Yay! Yeah. (laughs) It's a very official podcast. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're really happy to have you here. Bring everything full circle. My pleasure. I I I enjoy talking about the things a lot. Um, <laughs> okay. you, you may have to tell me to shut up uh, a few times. Um, I can go on. That's okay. <laughs> we we prefer it when people just talk. We learn so Great. much. <laughs> Great. All right. So the first thing we want to know where we usually start is at the beginning. Tell us about sort of how you came to LA and kind of like what you came here to pursue, etc. I came to LA in 2002 um, from New York, from New York originally. Uh, this isn't a great uh, happy story. Um, I came to LA basically because of 9 11, um, oh, wow. that I was living and working in New York, uh, working in, uh, we, at the time we called it streaming media, the, the sort of tech side oh. of how to put pictures on the internet. And mm-hmm. after 9 11, all the work dried up. There was no, there was nothing happening. And so it sort of felt like time for a change. Um, so I moved out here. I really was not at that point sort of with the eye of getting into the quote unquote business. Um, I had been doing this sort of traditional New York theater indie film thing okay. at that time, um, running up enormous credit card bills to make uh, short films, which yeah. is what you did in the 90s. As um, one still does. <laughs> Yeah, except it was more expensive then because we had to shoot on film. Right. Like we didn't have, have the video cameras that we have today, mm-hmm. and certainly not the phones. So that was really, really expensive. Yeah. But uh, I had had this experience the last year before I left New York that kind of sent my career on a, on a left turn, which mm-hmm. 
relates directly to why we're here. In 2001, there was this movie you may or may not remember called AI. You're right, um, yeah. Made by Steven Spielberg. And about four or five months before that movie came out, this thing happened where suddenly there were all of these websites mm. that were telling a story that was set in the world of AI, but like 40 years later. And the way you found it was on the movie poster in the credit block uh, mixed in with edited by a director of photography. There was a credit for a sentient machine therapist. And if you were like... Mm. What the heck's a sentient machine therapist? And you Googled that, you found the website of that person who wow. said it was the year 2142 and kind of introduced you to this world and you fell down mm-hmm. this rabbit hole. And what this was is it's now considered the first alternate reality game. Okay. And cool. it was okay. my first exposure to the concept of you can use the internet to tell stories. Mm-hmm. That this doesn't have to just be promotional, that you can put the actual story experience online. And it creates this sense of immersion and this sense of discovery that nothing else can touch. So up until then, I had been, you know, writing short films. I'd been writing stuff for the stage. And this sort of sent me off in a completely different direction, trying to figure out how do you use the internet for storytelling. So when I moved out here in 2002, that's kind of what I was focusing on. And I quickly found that there were very few other people out here (laughs) who knew what the heck I was talking about. So that was sort of a long road of, discovery and experimentation Mm -hmm. and kind of trying to figure out how you can use all these tools uh, as storytelling devices. So it was a lot of sort of small experimentation and a lot of going into meetings or going into pitches saying, hey, look, you can use things like Twitter to tell story and have people go, why do I care what people had for lunch? I don't understand. (laughs) what." So it was a long period of lots of little experiments building one to the next. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was so important for me about LBD is it was kind of the culmination of about 10 years of experimentation as the thing that showed that, no, all this stuff actually works. And you can tell a story on this scale on all these platforms and find an audience and really hook them. Awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, We know that you've said this in several other interviews, but humor (laughs) us and tell any fans who may not know, what do you define as transmedia? Oh, that's the question. That's the question. And then from there, it's going to get decidedly less cliche. (laughs) Yes. No, this is good because after 10 years of working in what we we call transmedia, this is still up for debate or argument. And Mm -hmm. the, the joke we like to tell is you put two transmedia creators in a room together and pretty soon you have three definitions of transmedia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a terrible word. We just don't have a better one. All right. Okay. Um, I've always been a big believer that the audience will determine what we call this eventually. Uh, when I was in film school, I used to teach the history of the cinema classes. So I, I like to remind people that the people who made the first movies, they called what they were doing things like the zoescope. The Zopraxiscope. Okay. It took the audience to go movies. And they're all like, oh, movies. Okay. So one of the most amazing things about Lizzie Bennet Diaries is that the audience that first discovered this concept of transmedia through the show, they just used the word transmedia to mean, oh, there's like story and it goes across social media platforms. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's just what it is. And it's so refreshing to not have to like have arguments with people <laughs> yeah. about it. But I actually do this as a talk often. I'll, I'll go to, you know, conferences or schools or universities and do a, do a talk about what is transmedia storytelling. And like, mm-hmm. so the first slide is what is transmedia storytelling? And the next slide is no, really, what is it? 
No, I'm asking. Yeah. <laughs> so the definition me? is the definition. The 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 kind of most universally agreed upon definition is telling stories over multiple platforms. But depending on how you define stories, platform, telling over, hmm. like change so, the definition of one of those words and you sure. get something that is wildly different. Mm-hmm. So it's an enormously imprecise term. For me, it just basically means you're not doing a single thing. You're doing something that is video plus social media. You're doing something that is theater plus skywriting. That it's the mentality of not focusing on a single format. Hmm. Okay, cool. I feel like that's a very difficult job because half of your job is telling people what you do and what you do changes all the time. Yes. Yes. It's an extremely (laughs) difficult job and it's an extremely difficult place to make a living. But that is one of the reasons that Lizzie Bennett was so important to me was when I was first asked to join the project. When I do work like this, and, I, and, I, and I've been doing work like this for a while, uh, mostly for movies and TV shows and, and in the, comes in the form of marketing campaigns. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you do those, you are so far removed from the central creative team. Mm-hmm. You come onto a project well after it's done. You have to find the little kind of interstitial places where you can insert a little bit of story. But it's always a secondary concern. You never have access to the core creators, it's always it always feels like an afterthought. Hmm. So when I first sat down with Bernie to to discuss coming on board LBD, um, and he kind of laid out what he wanted to do and what what he he thought we could we could accomplish using social media and other platforms, and I was initially very excited, but I had one condition, um, and that condition was if I was going to come on board, I needed to be a full fledged member of the writing staff. Mm-hmm. And we needed to treat all of the social media content the same as videos. So we broke story as a writing staff and included breaking what would happen in social media wow. okay. in those in those meetings. So while the um, I don't think I have an episode writing credit until like about halfway through the show, but I, I was so. there pretty much from not the very beginning. The first, I think, eight episodes were written before I came on, but... Um, from then on, I was in the writer's room and we were developing the social story bits at the same time as everything else, mm-hmm. which is what allowed us to do things like start laying the storyline for Gigi out from mm-hmm. the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what allowed us to do things like the actual very first chronological piece of content in Elizabeth Bennett Diaries is a tweet from Darcy and that we were able to kind of lay all that stuff out in parallel and, and hide it in place because we were talking about all that stuff as a unit from the very beginning. And it wasn't an afterthought. And to me, that that was the thing I wanted to prove with this show. And, and I feel like we did it in a really, really powerful way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, were you sort of... Were you sort of like helping develop the story? Or was it more as they were developing the story, you were suggesting how you could run parallel with this on social media. It was both. Okay. It was both. I mean, we we treated everything as story comes first, like what needs to happen in the story. And as it became clear, well, this is what's happening in, in the story for these characters in this moment, it became clear what things could be done on social media or what things could happen on social media that would help frame the story in the video episodes. But we first all beat out the story without regard to what happened where and, and what platform. So it was all a unified thing. Mm-hmm. 
Cool. Yeah. And there were a lot of platforms involved in this. Twitter was sort of the main one for characters, yeah. mm-hmm. but then you had OkCupid, you had LinkedIn, you had like all these other things. Yeah. There was OkCupid? There was. <laughs> I didn't know about this. I'm very sad. Yes, Wickham was on OkCupid oh, for yes. a little bit and you could you He could seems like an him. OkCupid um, kind of guy. You could message with him and he responded. <gasps> yeah. I didn't get that far. <laughs> yeah, we only Wait, did it for a very short period. I was going to say, is he still on there? But... Uh, he probably is. Oh, Most okay. of the sites are still there um if the platforms are still some of the platforms are gone one of our platforms was this is my jam which is a music platform which Mm -hmm. is no longer there no longer with us (laughs) um but yeah like uh, it's funny uh i still have all of the facebook accounts like we're still all kind of like you're linked up linked up on the facebook accounts and jane keeps getting messages people keep messaging jane just jane just jane i don't know why but like like in fact a couple of months ago there was some like influencer marketing agency in new york that like sent her an email and or sent her a message and was like we really loved your site we'd love to talk to you about doing something and increasing your exposure and i Mm -hmm. I wrote back and i was like hi i'm a fictional character (laughs) Uh, maybe do a little more research before you're uh reach out to people (laughs) that speaks to the legitimacy of how much thought went into these platforms because her her blog her lookbook does look very like she's a real person like she's someone aspiring to be a a fashion designer designer and and people did think for a while like are these scripted are is this really fiction and so there was that confusion even with the audience sure when we still comb through the comments every week there are people who are like no don't do it lizzie don't say that like they care about like they're addressing the characters rather than like the actors playing the characters it's good to know you can get discovered on social media though (laughs) there's hope for all of us yeah yeah, and also I remember sort of my favorite social media platform was, we haven't gotten to this point in the show yet, but like when Lydia and Wicca make the sex tape and he sets up that countdown website, yeah. like I know that doesn't exist anymore because like the whole point is it got taken right. down, but yeah. like that was cool. Did you basically yes. author all the social media posts for all the characters? No, I sort of took responsibility for what went on everything, but pretty quickly it devolved into certain people kind of took responsibility for certain specific things. Mostly it was character voice. So at a certain point it becomes clear that no one is going to write Lydia's tweets better than Rachel Kiley. <laughs> so when we needed Lydia stuff, we would reach out to Rachel and say, hey, can you write these? And, and either she would post them or she would write them up and then we would post them. Bernie did most of the Gigi and Fitz kind of cheerleading stuff oh, that happens fun. later. Actually, this is one of the, one of the whole reasons why uh, we brought on uh, Alex, Alexandra Edwards, was very early on in the story, we kind of decided to on this plan with Gigi to tell her story through the choice of music that she was going to listen to. Because when you line oh, up the okay. when you line up the chronological timeline of events, and you haven't gotten to this point in the show, but I love that you when... know that. <laughs> <laughs> Spoilers. Um, the thing that we learn later on about Gigi and Wickham, when that happens is right before the beginning of the story, which I always think is a really interesting window on Darcy. Darcy is really not trusting of anybody because this just happened. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, really still fresh. Okay. And so with Gigi, the idea was, how do we show her reaction to this event in a way that makes sense, but that we can intuit just through her music choices? So it was like, we start and she's despondent, and then she's angry, and then she's determined to get her life back together. Hmm. 
And I thought, oh, this is really cool. We're going to do this. And, and as soon as we decided that we were going to do this, I realized I did not know what a heartbroken 20-year-old girl would listen to. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is a problem. Because if you leave it up to me, she's listening to Belle and Sebastian. And that doesn't okay. quite seem right. Yeah. Over my head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was like, I think I need help here. And so we went out and, and like said, all right, let's find somebody to be my assistant, my help, my uh, a right-hand person to help me with this stuff. And that's where Alex came in. And Alex really took Gigi's jams and ran with them. And awesome. that was really great. And so it, it sort of evolved mm-hmm. into the right people doing the specific right voices when necessary. And I did, of course, I did a lot of it myself, but I also kind of oversaw all the other stuff. And then there were tons of times where there were just opportunities where something came up. One of my favorites was Caroline's Awful Thanksgiving, um, (laughs) where I think it was the night before Thanksgiving where I just, I had this thought and I emailed Bernie and I was like, hey, so we're at this point in the story where Caroline can see that she's losing her grip on Darcy. What would she do to try and get him back that would go horribly wrong? Like what's the last thing you would think Caroline Lee would take on herself? She's going to cook Thanksgiving dinner. And so we kind of like mapped out this whole Caroline Lee's horrible, terrible, no good day where she's trying to do this and everybody lets her down and she's like needs Bing to go get this thing and like other people are late and it just is a disaster. And I remember spending the whole day like at real Thanksgiving, (laughs) but every so often I would like go in and just like post the next thing from the next character to tell this this story throughout the day of, of Car- what Caroline was trying to do and failing miserably. She's not used to failure. No, yeah. that's a good one. That's yeah. like a very on-brand, very like characteristic Caroline thing. Yeah. My other favorite of the Twitter, specifically Twitter story events, was when we got to the moment where uh, Lizzie and Lydia have their big falling out. Mm. There's a real logistical problem at that point, especially because we'd established that Lydia has her own videos at this point, which is Lydia has to go off with Wickham for a long time posting these videos that show what's happening and Lizzie can't see it. Right. And this is a line that we always kind of kind of hand-waved around. Like, like <laughs> why is this on the internet? Like, like, wait, but this is out there. How are, this, this is why nobody ever watches Liddy, Lizzie's videos because they can't. Because if they do, we, we don't have a story. Um, but... We had this this issue of like, how do we make sure that it makes sense in the story that Lizzie isn't following Lydia's videos? And we decided that the way to do that was to have Lizzie unfollow Lydia on Twitter. And I remember I spent three days on that tweet, on one tweet, on like, how do we have Lizzie say she's unfollowing Lydia in a way that the audience kind of understands why she's doing it, even if they're horrified? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you phrase that so that you get you get like oh god Lizzie no that's the wrong thing but I kind of understand why you feel like you need to do it even though that's horrible Yeah. and so yeah I spent three days just trying to craft <laughs> that one tweet to try and just nail that specific feeling wait um, what did it say I forget what I don't it remember said. the oh. I, I don't remember exactly <laughs> what the wording was but it was something like you know sometimes you just have to like let someone do what they're going to do I forget exactly mm-hmm. what it was but yeah. because after a while yeah. it was like this is as close you can't you can't get any closer yeah. than this you're just gonna have to let it go and see what happens and yeah. I feel like it worked for the most part no um, yeah and that yeah. sort of touches on like subtweeting which is like people yeah. emotionally tweeting about something that they don't explain and I feel like that's yeah. like a very real thing that happens nowadays yeah 
So that's good, yeah, because she wouldn't say it like, I hate, I hate Lydia. She's doing such a... Unfollow. She's, she's yeah, unfollowing <laughs> yeah, Lydia. Unfollow, yeah. That, that was one of my favorite moments in the show, just because, really? I mean, because it detonated so much emotion across mm-hmm. people, and there were so many arguments about about what it meant. Mm-hmm. That meant that people cared. <laughs> like, and that's yeah. always like, yeah, yeah. like you got to remember, like, all of us who work on this show are used to doing projects, especially new media projects that nobody watches. <laughs> like you work okay. on something, you put it out, maybe a handful of people see it, you move on to the next one. The fact that we have an audience, mm-hmm. the fact that five years later, people are still talking about this mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. is unusual and really special. It is. It's still special to us to have done the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, let's see. So how did you get involved with joining the Lizzie Bennet Diaries team? That's actually a really funny story. And it's, it's a lot of sort of luck involved. That's so, sort of the yeah. running theme through everyone who got involved right. with this project. It was luck. It was yeah. just, we got in touch. So I'd, uh, I'd known Bernie beforehand just through the new media world mm-hmm. here in, um, in LA. There was a, um, I remember there was a conference. It doesn't happen anymore, but for a couple of years, there was this conference called Story World. This was 2011. It was in San Francisco. And Story World was kind of a transmedia conference. And all the kind of people in that community came together. To... How many were there? Oh, there was a lot. Okay. Yeah. And you know, there were lots of panels and discussions. And, and I, for a while, um, actually started a, I started a, an organization here in LA called Transmedia LA. It's now called Story Forward LA because nobody likes the word transmedia. <laughs> um, but the idea was, I think I'd mentioned earlier, I'd come out to Hollywood and I would go to these meetups where people were talking about what they were doing. And I would talk about all this weird kind of transmedia stuff I was doing and they'd go, I, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, there's got to be, there's no group for people who do this weird stuff like I do. So I guess we have to start one. And I had met a couple of other people and we were like, we're going to start like a, a, a networking group for people who do this weird storytelling stuff. And so uh, almost at the exact same time, Transmedia LA and Transmedia New York kind of started to do the same thing. Um, and our first meetup, I think, was probably 2009 and we had eight people. And um, since then it's grown. It's now the mailing list is like thousands and thousands of people. Wow. And the, the group's been a little dormant um, for the past few months, but I hear news that it's going to be picking up again. I had to sort of step back a few years ago when things got busy and other people took over. Mm-hmm. But while it was still running, we would have monthly meetups where we would have people come in and like do presentations about their projects. And it was a way for people who had these ideas but did not know whether or not they were crazy or not, because everyone mm. around them had no clue what they were talking about, mm-hmm. to find their community, to find other people who were working in the same area and being like, no, you're not crazy. This stuff does work. And a lot of times when people make projects and they don't have access to the community, you see this over and over again where someone will have a project and they'll announce it as the first blah, blah, blah. And we're like, hi, welcome. <laughs> We've been here for a while. Great, great that you're interested and excited sure. and stuff. But because this is a, I mean, this is a larger problem in new media in general is we are terrible at archiving and we are terrible at mm. replayability and we are terrible at even now, you know, like something like 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 LBD. You can go back to the YouTube page and watch the playlist, but it's a lot harder to get all of the other stuff. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And we haven't really cracked that problem yet. So the Story World Conference in 2011 in San Francisco, uh, I, I ran into Bernie there. And I remember like seeing him in the lobby and I remember seeing his like eyes were just like huge. And his, he was like, oh my God, this is like so amazing. I have all these ideas and thoughts. I'm like, 
great, cool. <laughs> um, and then the following year, I had actually, before Lizzie Bennet Diaries started, I had been working on developing a, a modern adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Um, and I've done a lot of research. <laughs> and I ultimately wasn't able to crack it. Like, and, but I had spent a lot of time reading the novel, reading, uh, when I do, uh, when I do stuff like this, I like to do a ton of research. So reading mm, a lot yeah. of like, uh, critical analysis and, you know, it's kind of sketching out uh, a version of the world. And ultimately I, I, I felt like I, I hadn't cracked it. So I put it away, but friends of mine knew that I was working on, on a Pride and Prejudice thing. So Bernie and I have a mutual friend, um, Liz Shannon Miller, uh, who she's now a um, she's now an editor at IndieWire. But at the time, she saw Bernie at some event or you know just out or around and a party or whatever, and they were you know talking about hey what are you up to? And Bernie said oh I'm doing this uh, modern adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, and <laughs> Liz said oh you should talk to Jay he's been doing something about Pride and Prejudice. So uh, one day I just got this email from Bernie out of the blue. And it I remember was like, you tweeted that. It was like, hey, uh, Liz told me I should uh, talk to you. I'm doing this thing. And, you know, we should talk about, you know, whether or not this would be interesting to you. And I remember for about 10 minutes, I was really angry. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. For 10 minutes, I was like, crap. Damn it. Bernie beat me to this. I'm never going to get to do my version of it. Stupid. Like, I should have found a way to, like, crack it earlier. When, mm. And I was really hard on myself. Like, I was really upset with myself. And then after about 10 minutes, it was like, that passed. <laughs> you have to allow yourself that, you know, yeah, space yeah. for that initial sort of reaction. And mm-hmm. I was like, this is actually an opportunity. And so I went and went and I sat down with Bernie and he kind of laid out his, the vision that he and Hank and Jenny had kind of developed for this. And I was like, oh, all the stuff I hadn't been able to crack, they cracked. And specifically it was costume theater. And I was oh, like, oh okay. my God, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And so, you know, he asked if I would be interested in, in coming on and doing the social media. And then we had that conversation I alluded to earlier about I, I need to be a full member of the writing staff. Mm-hmm. At the time, I was working as a writer-producer at this new media studio called Fourth Wall Studios. And I remember being very sort of tentative because you could technically argue that I probably wasn't actually permitted to work on the show. Oh. Um, should we cut so, this part out? Do we need to hide it from the cops who listen the cops who listen to our podcast? Fourth Wall Studios is out of business. So oh, I don't think all it's right. um, We're gonna talk about whatever. Any yeah. confidential information, you just <laughs> let it out. But so what I what I did say to Bernie was I need you to come in and meet with them so they can officially pass on it. So then oh. I feel more kind of comfortable mm-hmm. doing this outside of my quote unquote regular job. Got it. And so, you know, he did, he came in and, you know, they were like, well, we need to like redevelop this for another six months. And Bernie was like, no. So <laughs> I was like, great. So we jumped through that hurdle. That was great. And so then I came on uh, the project and I remember like the very first meeting that I came to with the writers, Margaret was there, Rachel was there. I don't think Kate had joined by that point, but I remember Bernie like laying out, oh yeah, so we're going to do this and we're going to do that. But you know, when we get to Lydia's downfall, we, uh, we haven't quite figured out what that's, what that's going to be yet. And I was like, oh, I have that for you. It's a sex tape. Because <laughs> right, oh, that no. was one of the things that I had kind of in my previous okay, uh-huh. work, like, like spent a lot of time thinking about yeah. what, what could stand in in a modern context for that? What's that would, scandalous? <laughs> that would scandalous, but would that the family would feel scandalized, whether or not mm-hmm. they should be, whether or not you can get into the sort of 
political implications of whether or not like Lydia should have the right to do whatever she wants. And that's that's a different conversation to have mm-hmm, because yeah. what would these people feel so hurt and mortified by in a modern context? And so that was, that was my first contribution to the project. Yeah. Um, what yeah. ideas were they toying with before? I don't think they had really gotten to it yet. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, because I mean, it was later and we yeah, definitely were yeah. sort of like, we'll figure those out when we get to them. But I was fortunate to walk in already having done a long period of thinking about this story, of thinking specifically about modern analogs. So basically, I had all these notes that mm-hmm. I had built up. So I just started pillaging them for things that would work for Lizzie Bennet Diaries. Not, I mean, not everything did. Uh, there's my favorite thing that I kind of put in that never went anywhere. No one ever even really asks about this, about why Ricky's company is Collins and Collins. Oh, like, yeah. Who's the other Collins? Yeah. That's my, I... that's my fault. Um, what did you do? <laughs> so there's a whole thing in the backstory in, in the original about Mr. Bennett and Collins's father and their relationship yeah. and how there was a falling out. And so I was trying to build that. I was trying to build hooks in where at some point we could like explore what this relationship was like, why Ricky Collins is, is related to, or even in this circle of people. And that just got, it was a lot easier to just say, oh, we went to school with him as a child. So that mm-hmm. just kind of, that, that made it an early kind of draft and then it just never went anywhere. And it's just one of those things that happens. You put hooks in in the beginning thinking, oh, maybe we'll come back to this later. And then they're just not necessary. So you just let them go. All right. Yeah. You see, it doesn't always work out. It doesn't yeah. always work out. Sometimes, And sometimes you get later on, you're like, why did we do that? <laughs> and we have to figure out like how to get out of that, which is one of my, another, another one of my favorite stories was the, the, the saga of Bing's uh, medical school career. Oh, right. Where <laughs> I, there was a day where Kate, Margaret and I were sitting around like writing, like working on our own stuff. This happened a lot during the show. We would sort of get together to write other things, but we didn't work. We just talked about what was happening on the show. Mm-hmm. And this thing kept coming up of people like being like, how is Bing in medical school? He's like going here and he's going there. And we were like, yeah, this really doesn't make any sense, <laughs> does it? And I think I, I, it's so long ago also that in my mind, I don't remember who came up with things. Sure. So I don't know if it was Margaret or me. Uh, one of us pitched the idea of what if Bing's not in school? And what if he's been lying this entire time? And then I remember Kate saying, like, telling a story about someone that she knew who, I think it was, said they were in law school or, like, was on their way to take the, the LSATs and then just pulled over at a rest stop on the highway and oh. sat there for eight hours and oh, didn't no. go. And so she wrote that scene and turned that yeah. into Bing has been lying about going to school because... And that suddenly gave us a whole different kind of world to play with, with being of somebody who was so cowed by expectation and so focused on what other people thought of him that he couldn't say what he really felt. And that gave us so much, that opened up so many things for how to end the Bing Jane relationship. And I got to say, Chris Sean like played the heck out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was really wonderful discovering that. And I always like to say that we earned our retcon badge that day. <laughs> we were like, yes, we were planning this. We were planning this all along. <laughs> That's good stuff. No, and it gives him another layer because I feel like it would also logically explain why he would take Darcy and Caroline's opinions into account about his love life. Like, Mm because he cares so much about what other people think and he wants, he just wants to please everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times, like, you know, we, we look smart, but we just sort of stumble into things (laughs) (laughs) over like, 
we get all this stuff beforehand and now we have to figure out how to how to make it work right. what if we did this <laughs> you know right. oh yeah. so going back to the collins and collins thing all right so did you call it is it collins and collins because it was originally going to be like a business endeavor with his father yeah so the first collins is these collins the elder okay. and, and ricky is the second collins and collins the elder is not with us anymore mm-hmm. but it just as we got into it that just there was nothing about that that helped us going forward, yeah. so we just dropped it. Yeah. But it, there was enough of an idea early on that it made its way into the branding, and there was the Collins and Collins website, which I don't know if that's still up. And I think it also worked because it made it feel, I think there was a credible way of interpreting it that Ricky just named it Collins and Collins because that sounded more official. Yeah. Um, that's and I think that's at one point we were like, we'll just go with that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, did yeah. anyone question it? Did any of the fans yeah. ask about that? I don't know. So yeah. they, they picked up on it. Yeah. It wasn't, I don't yeah. know if it was like a crazy popular theory, but I'm happy to know about this. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember reading the letter in the novel of like, dear sir, mm-hmm. Collins to Mr. Bennett, like, I know you and my dad didn't get along, but, like, you know that I'm... He, he's, like, right. the Matthew Crawley from yeah. Downton Abbey. Like, he's the distant yeah. cousin, but he's, yeah. like, the closest man who's going to inherit the land. So he's, yeah. like, we might as well know each other. We might as well marry one of your daughters. Like, yeah. can I come by? Or I'm coming right. by. Tell me if you don't want me to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And one of the directions I had been kind of trying to explore in the work I was doing before LBD started was... I think there's a really interesting case to be made that Mr. Bennett is the bad guy of this story. Um, and that we all want to like him. but And not, not let me be clear, not in Lizzie Bennett Diaries. Oh, okay. In Pride and Prejudice. Okay. okay. And I was really trying to explore, like, what he was doing wrong that put his daughters in this position. And so his relationship with the elder Mr. Collins was kind of a big part of that. So that was a, informed a lot of my early thinking hmm. that once we got into the show, it was like, oh, this doesn't really work for this. So we just sure. throw that part out. He's um, just a lovable guy who loves trains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And is really bad with money. Yeah. He's yeah. just poor guy. He's just like, yeah. Yeah. he's spending all his money on trains. That's yeah. what he's doing. That too. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of like a 401k mm. or whatever. Right. <laughs> so later in this series, then Domino came along. Ah, uh, Domino. And that was a, it was like a new thing. It was like sort of like what now we know as FaceTime sort of mm-hmm. thing. How did Domino come about? That's actually a really interesting question. And then there's a lot of backstory to that. And there are a couple of, there are a couple of branches to this. One is as much as everyone loves the intimacy that watching characters vlogging gives you. And as great as that is for building a world, you start getting really hamstrung when you move towards endings of stories. Hmm. And you can see it in the questions in the comments of the fan base as we go along. The question of, why are you recording this and putting this on the internet? Like, (laughs) at a certain point, you sort of have to go through all of these gyrations in order to make that make sense. Mm -hmm. So we're always, and this is not just, I mean, and this is not just an issue for Lizzie Bennet Diaries or web series. Like, this is a thing that happens in alternate reality games all the time. That, you know, every project I've ever worked on, somebody at one point says, well, we'll use surveillance video. And it's like, nobody wants to watch surveillance (laughs) video. Like, that's a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Um, But this question of where is the camera in the action and why is it there? And we're always looking for other ways to explain why people are on camera. So that's sort of one branch of where Domino kind of comes in. The other one is I, I mentioned I, I was working at this company called Fourth Wall Studios. Mm-hmm. And what uh, what we built at Fourth Wall was this platform called, it was called Rides. And what Rides did 
is it would synchronize web video with emails, phone calls, and text messages. So you'd be watching a video, mm-hmm. and then you'd get an email from someone in the story, or you'd get a text message from the world of the, of the story you were watching. And the killer uh, feature of rides was the phone calls. So you'd be watching a video, and someone on screen would have their phone ring, and then your phone would ring. Mm-hmm. And the person on screen <laughs> would start having a conversation, and you would pick up your phone, and you would hear the other end of their conversation. That's so cool. And it would go back and forth from the screen to your phone, and it would stay in perfect sync. The first time you see this, it's the coolest thing you've ever seen. But the fourth time it happens, you're like, oh my God, shut up. I'm trying to watch this video. Oh, okay. So we discovered that there were issues with this. But um, when we got towards the back half of Lizzie Bennet Diaries, the Gigi story arc was initially pitched. Like the initial idea was to do it on rides. And so I pitched it to the people I worked with there. They were really interested in it. We were working on how to make all that work. And the thing that was really exciting to me was, um, like, if you imagine what, you know, what we've seen of Domino, where there's Gigi and then, like, there's the little window of Darcy in the corner. The original intention was your phone would ring and you would hear Darcy as he's talking to Gigi on the screen. And I just got really excited by the idea of like fans watching this and then their phone rings and Darcy's on the phone and how mm-hmm. like, how amazing would that be? The fan girls would have died. We lost it. <laughs> lost it. Um, but as we were getting close to nailing this down, fourth wall went out of business. So Domino became the idea. So Bernie came up with this concept of Domino to sort of fill that void of like, Mm. how can we do a lot of the things that we wanted to do with rides, but without having rides and something we could just do on YouTube. And so that's, that's kind of how Domino was born. Yeah. Yeah. I had always pitched that as um, when we were talking about the initial story, it was like, it was a small, like Gigi as Veronica Mars um, storyline of like Gigi was going to take on the task of hunting down Wickham and figuring out where he was. I like it. And then she'd exact her revenge. (laughs) And then it would take a very violent turn. (laughs) (laughs) So let's jump for a second kind of into Sanditon. Did you sort of want to take, like, you know how like with NC or like NCIS was kind of born out of this show Jag? And like, so they like deliberately introduced these characters in an episode so you'd fall in love with them and then like follow their show and like 12 years later we're still on the air. Was it kind of like that? Like how did it come about and why Sanditon? Because like no one's heard of that unfinished book. So here's how, here's how that show came about. Um, It was probably, I guess, March of 2013. We were rounding towards the end of, of the show. So, you know, we knew that was coming. We knew that Emma was going to be the show after that. Um, Bernie had decided on it. He went back and forth for a while, but eventually he told us we're going to do Emma, but it's going to take us a few months to do all the development and get that on the air. Mm -hmm. We have this audience that is subscribed to this channel. We need to give them something in the interim. So he came to the writers and he basically said, like, if you have an idea, like of something that we can do on a small scale that can kind of fill the gap between the end of Lizzie and the beginning of Emma, let me know. And I was like, challenge accepted. <laughs> um, and I started thinking that I knew that whatever came second, no matter what it was, there was going to be a backlash. That people were not going to like it because it wasn't the show that they loved. Mm-hmm. So my thought was, let's use that. Let's use that to do something really experimental and like to really sort of push 
some of the transmedia stuff that we've been doing. Because if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And people are, you know, it's it's not going to do as well as Lizzie anyway. And if we're lucky, maybe we can use that to sort of reset the audience expectation so that when Emma came along, they would be like, oh, great. You know, this is more like what we, what we wanted. So we always knew, like I knew from the beginning that Sanditon was not going to be as successful. It was designed that way. But because uh, I know that that a lot of the people that there was a significant portion of the people that watched Sanditon that were really vocal on how much they didn't like it. Hmm. Um, and we always knew that was going to happen. We were prepared for that. So Bernie had kind of put this challenge out there. And so I started thinking about what's a small story we can do to fill this space. So I instantly started looking at Austin's smaller works. And I came across Sanditon and I was like, oh, this is interesting because what Sanditon has, or just the fragment of Sanditon has that most of Austin's other work doesn't, is it's all in one location. Oh, okay. And it's yeah. about this town. Mm-hmm. And this was about the time that Parks and Rec was really starting to hit its stride. Yes. And so there is this real sense of like, oh, we cannot, we, we can adapt the town, not just the story. And the fact that there isn't a whole story is actually a strength because we can just adapt the fragment that's there. And instead of building after that, we can build outward and we can build the rest of the environment. Mm-hmm. Around the same time, I had taken a trip back to New York and I had seen a play called Sleep No More, mm-hmm. um, which if any of the listeners have the opportunity, run. <laughs> run. It's still, it's still going. It's been going now oh, for wow. about five years, four or five years. Wow. Sleep No More is kind of the vanguard or the the superstar production of this new wave of immersive theater. It is a immersive adaptation of Macbeth crossed with the movies of Hitchcock. And it's done very specific. And it's done in a space in in Manhattan. They got this six story warehouse space and they built out a hundred rooms inside of it. Oh wow. Um, most of it to look like a derelict hotel from the 30s, but there's a graveyard, there's a town main street, there's a nightclub, and you come into the show and there are a couple of rules. The first rule is you have to wear a mask. Okay. Second rule is you can't speak. And then they send you into the space and you can wander around and they're in the space are about maybe about a dozen, a dozen and a half actors who are playing out the story in all sorts of different locations in the building. And you as the audience member can go wherever you want. You can stay in a room. You can like open all the drawers and all the stuff that's inside wow. is, is built to be part of the world. There are kind of secret parts of the show where every so often one of the cast members will take a member of the audience and pull them into a separate room and close the door and take your mask off and do a short little one-on-one scene. Ooh, um, it's incredible. And so I got I had been hearing about it for a while and I got to see it and it blew my mind. But one of the things about Sleep No More that I found really, really interesting is that there is no canonical version of the story. That every person's experience is different. Wow. That nobody can see all of it. There's too much for one person to see everything. So the fun is you go on your path, your friends go on their path, Mm -hmm. then you meet up afterwards and you compare notes. And I was really excited by like this idea as a storytelling kind of conceit and I was like how do we build a story where everyone's experience of it is unique Mm -hmm. and 
that's what I try to build into Sanditon. And so mm-hmm. when we started talking about building Sanditon as this world, the idea was make it big. Make it so that you can't see all of it. Make it so that somebody can run an insurance company and somebody can be a dragon. Like <laughs> these yeah. things don't have to fit together. And that was a lot of fun, but a lot of people didn't like that. A lot of people mm-hmm. didn't want that. But that was the intention from the beginning was to build a world that was large enough to contain all of these multitudes hmm. that that there was no single canonical story, but that our video story would be kind of the thread to tie everything together and that everything could kind of resolve, revolve around. We had a ton of fun doing it. So I pitched that to Bernie and he was like, great. Like, <laughs> he took it to Hank and, and, and the folks at DECA who were, you know, financing the show at that point. And I think from the moment I pitched it, Actually, if memory serves, I actually pitched it. We were at an, we were at a party the night before the streamies. Yeah. We were at the What's Trending space in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. We were at a party. I remember this too because Alex had come to town. Because Alex had done the whole thing. Like she was in Georgia. Oh, um, wow. So okay. like, like I had never actually physically met her yeah. before. And then like she came yeah. out for the streamies. And it was like, hey, like, hey, boss. You're awesome. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and we were at that party and I pitched it, pitched it to Bernie at the party. And he was like, huh, that's interesting. And then the following Monday, he was like, great, we're doing it. And then the following week, we had to go into, like, we had to start pre-production. And wow. so it was literally like wow. drop of a hat go. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. How so long then, did it take you to assemble everything and start? Like from that pitch to like when you put the first video online, how long was that? I don't remember. I mean, I could figure it out, but my guess would be probably six weeks. Wow. Um, God. Okay. <laughs> you <laughs> just cringed. <laughs> I was just like, that's, that's, that's a amount yeah. of time. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, it may have been wow. longer. We'd spent a long time on casting um, uh-huh. because yeah. we needed to get that, that chemistry oh, yeah. just yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Kyle walked in and we were like, Yay. oh, wow. Like, you. just like, yeah, yeah. We saw a lot of great people in the auditions. Auditioning is hard. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, I feel so bad <laughs> for, <laughs> for actors. It is hard. But we saw so many great people. Mm. Um, you know, is this was another round of like, oh, it's Brent Isaacs. How can we get him in the show? Well, we can't. Like, like oh. one day we're gonna get him oh, in the no, show. Oh no, that's yeah. right. I've seen his um, behind the scenes yeah. video where he talks about coming in for everything. Yeah, yeah. he got down to the 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 very last round with Kyle. On, um, I can see them yeah. sort of being. And this is where we first saw Joanna Sotomayor, and so oh, yeah. we like made the note like like Margaret and I are like watching audition and the way we do this is we've kind of all got a joint spreadsheet that we're all like typing in as yeah. people are auditioning and we're both like like both typing this is emma <laughs> like like That's like awesome. send her to bernie for when he's auditioning emma oh my gosh um, great yeah yeah we saw a lot of really really good actors um and we were really fortunate to get the ones that we did and just mm-hmm. when 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 we put kyle and lena together it just it just happened and we were like oh there it is there they are mm, yeah great. yeah Awesome. Well, it's cool to hear that like Sanditon was sort of born out of this concept of world building because I feel like that's probably something that even if you, no matter how deeply you think about it, like not everyone's going to interpret it that way. Yeah. And I'm still, I mean, there are still a a handful of Sanditon role players that are still going, um, which I always find really, really incredible. (laughs) Um, There used to be, it's less active than it used to be, but it used to be when I would do like talks or mm-hmm. I would give, you know, at conferences and stuff and I would talk about Sanditon and I would, and I would go, 
it's three years later. Let's see what they're up to now. Oh, the sandwich and taco truck is outside. And I pull out my phone and like, just like look at the hashtags and be like, here's where the taco truck is. And here's, you know, what's going on today in Sanditon. Uh Then we ended up doing a a role-playing game um, built around it with, um, there's this uh, role-playing game company called Storium. That's an online Mm -hmm. uh, RPG system. And they did a Kickstarter about a year and a half ago. And with, and they got a bunch of, uh, writers to create worlds um, for it, and we so we cr- sort of created an extension to Sanditon hmm. that would that took a lot of. And this was fun because we took a lot of the um, stuff that the audience had created and some characters that the audience created, and we put them into the role playing game. Hmm. So certain things that were fanon are now canon in the Sanditon <laughs> world. Horabelle is canon now in the uh, in the Sanditon world. The dragon, uh, the dragons are favorite. <laughs> the Sanditon no. mafia. Um, the Sanditon Mafia. Yes, yes. Oh my god, I want that job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Run the Mafia. That is start up a rival Mafia. Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm in, I'm newly inspired. Yeah. So That's I great. I haven't looked at the Storium page in a while, but it would be really interesting to hear if anyone's actually gone in and played played sure. that. That would be that would be fun to fun to find out. Definitely have to check yeah. on that. Yeah. And also, I mean, I can't I can't let another moment of Sanditon talk go by without mentioning that none of it would have been possible without the amazing Margaret Dunlap, who was my partner in in all of this stuff. Mm. And this weird dynamic kept happening when we were doing the show and we were talking about the show. I would do a lot of interviews where I would, places would want to write articles about it. So I would talk about them and I would, you know, go to great lengths to say, you know, and, 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 you know, I did this with my partner and this is my co-creator and co-showrunner, Margaret Dunlap. And they would keep putting these articles out that would just credit me as the creator mm-hmm. and showrunner. And I, I kept having to call back and say, I need you to fix this. Wow. Because, and this has been one of the really amazing parts of the experience of the whole Lizzie Bennett Sanditon experience for me is, I mean, it's primarily a female targeted property with an overwhelmingly female audience. And even though Bernie at the top is not female. I'm not female. Most of the writing staff was. Most of the cast was. And uh, we we took our the responsibility very seriously um, mm. that to make sure that it didn't become another one of those projects where you know it's being pitched as female oriented, but all the names are, are guys. Right. And, like, and there were times where I was I was really uncomfortable that like Bernie and I were the ones that started like going to conferences and talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really important to constantly um, get those names out there. This show is not, these shows are not anything like they were without Margaret, without Kay Rorick, without Rachel Kiley, without Alexandra Edwards. None of this happens at all without Ashley Clements. Um, mm. And we can talk about <laughs> transmedia storytelling to blue in the face, mm-hmm. but if you don't have an actor of that caliber that can hold that attention over that can be a 99% of all of the content that can do 60 pages a day. We, we would have been nowhere without her. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am always cognizant that I own an enormous debt to these women. And so it's, and it's always, a, it's always, a, I always have to be aware that people want to talk to me about stuff and, you know, I'm just part of this team and this mm-hmm. incredible team. It was really a privilege to, to be able to work with them. That's great. And I feel like not only has luck been a running theme for everyone who we've talked to about how they ended up on the show, but 
I feel like something that's really been emphasized throughout is like everyone just worked well together and everyone kind of brought their piece of the pie to all of this. And yeah, it does seem like a real team effort. It's interesting even to comb through these comments and because like Hank was the only person a lot of people knew they were like, good job Hank for this thing. And he didn't even know that like, Jenny Powell's bedroom was never Netherfield right. and Lizzie Bennett's bedroom was just like funny to hear. So yeah. we're happy to spread the word about yeah. I mean, the team effort. I mean, Jenny, like Jenny was there from the beginning. Jenny's fingerprints are all over all of this stuff. And, you know, I talked about my experience with, um, with the AI game and, and, you know, right, yeah. informing how a, a lot of the thinking that went into, into this project. I mean, Jenny had the same thing with uh, lonely girl. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, she was up close for that incredible experience. And, and so we've really benefited from, you know, both of our experiences with these landmark uh, interactive projects and, and, you know, everyone who was involved played, you know, it's, it's one of those magical kind of dream team kind of things that when you're in the middle of it, you're like, oh, I don't really know, like, like if this is going to work, but you look back and you're like, how lucky did we get? I mean, the amount of skill, I always like to think about how hard, a task we set Daniel hmm. um, to play Darcy that Daniel's coming in in episode 60 when everybody else in the show has done impressions of him. <laughs> We've created a voice for this character uh-huh. through social media. Then yeah. you have to come in and embody that mm-hmm. and, and, and come up with a version of this character that people go, Oh, I can see why they did that. Or I can see why other people did impressions of him that way, but he's actually something a little different. Mm-hmm. That is really hard. Yeah. <laughs> that is really, really, really hard. And he was incredible. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just continually wowed by everybody who I got to work with on this. Like, mm-hmm. like it was just incredible. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, any interesting projects in the future you'd like to plug? Oh, uh, plug. Um, hmm. Or talk about. Or not talk well, about. this is, I mean, this is one of the reasons I like talking about Lizzie Bennet Diaries <laughs> as much as I do is a lot of the stuff I work on, I'm not allowed to talk about. Okay. And, um, even after it's out, there's this, um, I mean, and this actually, I think, goes a little bit to your point about, you know, people talking about, you know, thanking Hank in the credits because they know Hank is involved. Like, this is not just, that's just not a web series thing. That's across everything. Like, yeah. you see... A project, you know the name of one or two people attached to it, but there's an army of other people involved. Right. And a lot of times, especially when you're working with a big studio or a big network, they don't want the audience to know the names mm. of all the other people because they want it. They're creating a relationship with the the people at the top. Mm-hmm. So I can't talk about a lot of the work that um, that I've done uh, or that I'm working on now because it's it's all under NDA. I'm hopeful that, you know, Bernie announced uh, this LBD5 thing. Ooh, that, can you tell us um, anything about that? I can't really. Uh. Um, <laughs> we tried. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but we've had been having conversations about that, and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to get that going sooner rather than later. And just, you know, keep your eyes peeled. If, if I have stuff happening, I generally can't talk about it until it's actually happening. Right. Um, we understand. Yeah. All right. Well... Thank you so much for talking to us about Thanks this Thanks for today. having me. This is great. That wraps it up for this episode. You can follow Jay Bushman on Twitter at Jay Bushman. 
And you can check out our social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at The Pemberley. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Pemberley. And if you'd like to talk to us directly or have any questions, email us at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com. And to support the podcast, donate to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thepemberley. Or leave us a review on iTunes. That helps other people to find this podcast. You can find links to all of these pages on our WordPress page, thepemberleypodcast.wordpress.com, where we also include links to anything we mentioned on the show. Thanks again for listening. Bye! Bye.